Colossians chapter 3. So thankful for the team that the Lord has brought to Palmetto. And so thankful for Pastor Hiro's part in our service and baptizing those two individuals. Thankful for Pastor Coco and his ministry to our new visitors and members and his care for them. And Pastor Doug and what he's doing with our young marrieds. Pastor Garrett and his ministry to our young people. And thank you for Pastor Ken and Pastor Sam. I think I got everybody. Did I forget someone? (laughs) Good. We praise the Lord for the team the Lord's given. Can we pray? I was just moved by that song, The Powerful Name of Christ. And I just want to pray together as we proclaim the name of Christ this morning. Father, I do pray that this morning as we look into your word, may we see this radical reality that being united in Christ is powerful. We just sang about the powerful name of Christ. It was with a word that this world was created. It was the word that has come and has redeemed us from our sins. It is the name of Christ that caused demons to shudder. And so this morning, may I not preach another name besides Christ. May you be lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4 reads this. Read along in your copy of Scripture. It says this, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Let me begin with a story from the era of the Cold War. There was a Russian spy by the name of Stanislav Lunev. And he spent many years gathering information for the USSR in places like China, Singapore, and even in the United States. And at the collapse of the USSR, he made this very difficult decision to defect to the United States. If you don't mind, I'm just like really echoey in um, the monitor. So if you don't mind, turn that down. I feel like I'm speaking in a tin can. (laughs) That's just a little distracting. I feel like my water's full of head. Maybe my my head's full of water. (laughs) Guess I'm dyslexic too this morning. (laughs) All right. Well, Bert Arrowwood was bringing all the men on a tube ride. So maybe I got more water in my ear than I expected. Well, there was this Russian spy, and he made this shocking decision to defect to the United States. And as far as we know, he remains the highest-ranking member of the Soviet military to defect to the United States. 
He then informed the United States government that his espionage assignment, what it was, and he was here actually to scout out drop sites for weapons, including atomic weapons that would be in the size of a suitcase. And for this information, he was placed in witness protection in the United States. He was given a new name, a place to live, a background story, a monthly paycheck, and a new beginning. And for all I know, Stanislav Lunev is still in witness protection today, living out the reality of his new identity in the United States. Before his, his new identity, he lived in opposition to the United States. He actually wanted to destroy the United States and her, do great harm to her citizens. He is living in light of the realities of his new identity. It's hard not to see how this story can trace over gospel themes. As Christians, we've been given a new identity, and that identity is rooted solely in Christ. And we've come to Colossians 3 this morning, and let me give you a little bit of background of the story. Paul wrote the book of Colossians from prison, and even in the state of being bound in chains, he was exhorting the Colossi believers to find their sufficiency and supremacy in Christ for their lives. The church was experiencing pressure from a heresy that was either about to come to Colossae or had already come to the city of Colossae and he was informing them not to fall to the pressure of this heresy. And that heresy was promising deeper spiritual realities through secret knowledge in Christ by doing various rituals and following various guidelines. It was by these guidelines that they, kept, that, that they would keep that would elevate their Christian experience. As I was studying this, I couldn't help but think of uh, uh, a um, televangelist who would get on the TV and proclaim, just send in a little more money to have a deeper experience, to have this taken care of in your life. It's this, it's this experience, this, this uh, deeper spiritual reality outside of Christ. They also face this unimaginable pressure of living in the pagan Roman Empire. And that put pressure on their spiritual life as they were trying to be conformed to live as non, in a non-Christian reality. But the Colossi believers didn't, uh, don't need to trust in religious ceremonies or religious observances to make them holy. They don't need to follow the guidelines of festivals and feasts to have a deeper experience of religion. But rather, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, you are complete through your union with Christ. Paul builds an argument all the way from chapter 1, saying that Christ is supreme 
and over all things. And then in chapter 2, Paul confronts that heresy that, that the Colossi believers were being sought to be conformed into and, and really saying that anything that is added to Christ is actually nothing. So Christ plus, plus something else equals nothing. And he topples these arguments for this deeper Christian experience by adding something to Christ for the purpose of creating a better religious experience, a more fuller relationship, a deeper understanding. And when they do that, they actually demean, or when they, when, if they were to add these things to the life, they would actually demean and remove Christ from his supreme and preeminent position in their lives. These regulations the Colossi believers, um, for the Colossi believers, actually didn't address the deepest reality of the human heart. And Paul even admits this in Colossians chapter 2, verse uh, 23. He says, These rules and regulations have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and sev- a severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are of no value of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so a question that we must ask is, so what was going to stop the indulgence of the flesh? What can actually conquer sin? What can destroy the authoritative power of sin in the lives of the believers in Colossae? What is the secret sauce, you could say, for the Christian life so they can go deeper and have a fuller Christian walk while the objective reality is found in being in Christ? If you are a believer today, the access to the fuller experience is not something you need to gain, but it is something that you have already gained in Christ. You are in Christ. You have been given a new identity that is solely rooted in Christ. This week and next week, we will examine Colossians chapter 3, 1 to 17. This morning, just 1 to 4. And I think what Paul is telling the Colossi believers will be very impactful for us. The transformed life doesn't start with guidelines. The transformed life doesn't start with rules and regulations. It actually begins with the unshakable reality that you are in Christ. You have been united with Christ. And out of that union flows the response to that union, which is a life that is transformed. This morning, I want to give you three realities of our union with Christ. And number one is this. We have a new identity. We have... A new identity. We see this in these first four verses. Uh, We see it three times in verse one. If then you've been raised with Christ. Look at verse three. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse four. Then you also will appear with him in glory. To express how fundamental this reality is. You could say a Christian is someone who is in Christ. It is the very essence of the gospel. 
You may say, well, how, how full is this theme in the New Testament? It's actually, it's pervasive. In, Pauline's, in, in Paul's writings, this phrase, in Christ or in the Lord, comes up over 160 times. This, it's, it's a rich theme. But not only is this just a Pauline thing, a theme, it's actually through the whole New Testament. In John's Gospel, we see this idea described as Christ is the vine and we are the branches. In Peter's, gospel, in Peter's letter, we see this as um, our union with Christ being uh, Christ is the cornerstone and believers are building blocks of the same building. You see, Paul writes the Corinthian believers and he describes this union as Christ is the head and we are the body. And so a question that may be coming up, if we are in Christ... If we had this new identity, it must mean that at some point we had an old identity. It must mean that we at some point were actually outside of Christ. Oh, that's very true. See, this is what Romans chapter 5 verse 12 to 21 talks about. And it actually describes how we were actually in Adam by nature. By nature, you and I have this identity that is pre-programmed into who you and I are. At the beginning of the story of the Bible, we learn that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. In that garden, they were given instructions to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yet one day, Eve ate the fruit. Adam quickly followed and they partook of this forbidden fruit and, and they disobeyed God's law. They sinned and this sin brought death. It brought separation from God. And they were very quickly ushered out of the garden. And they could not return into God's presence. And every man and woman that's been born since has been born into Adam's family. We are by default at war with God. That's Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 4. The common reality of this family is, is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Our identity by default is that we are in Adam. Maybe when you get a new computer, a new phone, that phone comes with a, a pre-programmed setting. It's the default settings. And very quickly, we're trying to sync it with our old phone or sync it with our uh, old computer to try to change the default settings to something that is actually something that we're used to. Well, you and I have a terrible default setting, and it is sin. And it's the reality that we've been born into Adam. But through the finished work of Christ on the cross, you, Christian, have been brought into union with Christ, giving you a new identity that is no longer in Adam, but in Christ. So to the Colossae believers who are attempting to set up guidelines to be holy, Paul informs them that they've been intimately connected to Christ. What what experience of Christ have they been connected to? Well, he says in verse 3, for you have died with Christ. Verse 1, since you've been raised with Christ. This morning we saw the visible preaching of baptism, the visible sign of our death 
burial, and resurrection, walking in newness of life. And we, we, we very much desire this transformed new life. But what is the reality of our death? What actually did we die in? Well, we, we died to sin. We died to sin. We died. Being in Christ means that we have died to the objective, authoritative power of sin so that you are no longer under its dominion and control. Just about a month ago, we celebrated the anniversary of the independence of the United States, and that is called July 4th. Can I just say, you all, down in the South, do July 4th correctly. It is wild down here. The amount of fireworks that are sold is unbelievable. People kind of lose their minds. I mean, I don't mean to be judgy. But you go to these little shacks that are set up for about two weeks, and you open your wallets, and you say, take all my money. I want to blow it up. (laughs) Our neighborhood is out of control. Sometimes I've wondered... (laughs) Are we going to have a fire on our roof? This is just next level. I love it. But on this this holiday, we grill out, we shoot off fireworks, we play games. The sign of this independence is that we fly the American flag. It's on our t-shirts. It's on our parade routes. It's everywhere. It's on the front of our houses. And then we've had, imagine with me, you've had a great July 4th. You've celebrated the independence of the United States and then you wake up on July 5th. And you turn on the radio, or the, the news, and you hear the Queen of England beginning to give this news conference, and she's instructing American citizens to no, to no longer send their tax payments to the IRS, but please wire them to the British government. And you imagine you get up, and you go to your computer, and you wire that transfer to the British government, And you say, that's wonderful. Well, why is that so ridiculous? It's because the British government has no authority over you as an American citizen. There was a new identity that was established for those who lived in the colonies that now extend to people who are born within her borders today. I mean, the last time they tried to attack Americans we decided to have a a wonderful tea party. And if you are an American citizen, the queen has no authority over you. What's the point? Christian, you are in Christ. Sin has no authoritative power and claim to you. So live like your identity. Quite... uh, Uh, continually writing the tax payment to sin is ridiculous. Live in light of who you are. You are no longer an Adam. You are in Christ. And you have the full benefits of being united with Him. But maybe you're here today and you say, okay, Ben, I understand the objective reality of that. I understand that Christ conquered sin, but Ben, I feel like I'm still under the authority of sin. I still feel like sin has its way with me. I mean, where, where's my hope? Well, we, 
we actually begin by answering that question by looking at where Paul leads us. He just talked about we have this new identity. But second of all, this new identity directs our affections. This new identity directs our affections. Uh, Remember that Paul just got done informing the Colossi believers that the rules and regulations they construct have no power in actually curtailing the evil desires of the human heart. Those regulations, those guidelines of, of, as he says in verse 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, have no ability to alter the affections of your heart. About five years ago now, I was involved in a counseling situation of which a husband was having an adulterous relationship and was habitually lying about this relationship and to, the, to, to such a level that he was, uh, he had several electronic devices and he would ping his location of another device so that his wife, looking on her phone to see where he was, would actually see that he uh, was in the right spot, whereas he was actually pinging it from a spot he was not supposed to be. Deceptive to a very, very deep level. And I remember I was talking to a counselor about this, uh, a counselor mentor, and I asked him, I said, I said, what do we do? I mean, I mean, you know, she, we, we're setting up all these guidelines. We're, we're asking him all these questions and, and we're doing this and we're doing this. And, and he, he kind of just eventually just stopped me and he said, Ben, there's not enough barbed wire and there is not a wall high enough to keep the human heart from doing what it really wants to do. We're talking affections. In order for our new identity to be demonstrated in our life, our affections must be affected. Our affections have to be changed. And so there's this reality that Paul points to in verses, uh, the second half of verse 1 and verse 2. He says, first, the, the direction of our affections are towards heaven. The direction of our affections are towards heaven. He says this, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. In these four verses, there's two commands that are given, imperatives. Do this. Don't do this. In these four verses, we see these two commands here. Seek the things above. Set your minds on things that are above. And Paul is forming us that our minds must be placed towards heaven. Or another way to put this is that we must live our life filtering the experience of our lives through the lens of heaven. You know, it is so easy for me to to filter my experience on earth through the lens of earth. Man, everybody's out to get me. Man, this is so unfair. Man, I can't. Man, problem after problem. And, and my mindset never goes to heaven to actually demonstrate that there is a sovereign creator providentially leading my life and it stays on earth. 
This command is, is so essential because our, our natural default is that we're earthly minded. We saw this in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus teaches. There's this contrast of kingdoms, kingdom, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of earth, and maybe one of the most stark demonstrations of this kingdom-mindedness is actually what we do with our, our money, our treasures, uh, the things that we have. And, and Jesus informs these people who are around him who have hardly... And he says to them, lay up your treasures, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, ne- where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, but where your treasure is, there will your heart, your affections, be also. And then P- Paul talks about this heaven-mindedness in a different way in the book of uh, Philippians verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is directing our minds and our hearts that in order to live out this identity of being in Christ, we must set our affections on heavenly realities. And the most culminating reality of heaven is that Jesus is there. But not only is he saying that our minds must be heavenward, but it's actually this heavenward affection should be habitual. It should be habitual. The verb that is used here This command has the idea of ongoing effect. Paul could have said, keep thinking about things above. Keep doing this. Continue on. The pattern of the continual pursuit of heavenly things becomes the habit of our mind. Douglas Moo, the Bible scholar, says this, Believers seek the things above by deliberately and daily committing ourselves to the values of the heavenly kingdom and living out those values. Up in New Hampshire, where I am from, there are actually five seasons. There's the typical winter, spring, summer, fall. Winter lasts a little longer there than here. But there's also this season called mud season. How many of you are familiar with mud season? Mud season, it is this time of the year that is sandwiched between winter and spring. Now, not all things are evil in mud season um, because there is something that is made during mud season called maple syrup. It's wonderful. But mud season is not a blessed time. It is, and in one regard, it's very normal for when you're driving down a country road for the road, dirt road, to thaw during the day and refreeze at night. And so as you're driving on this road during the day, it's thawed, cars make these ruts in the road. And guess what happens? At night, they freeze. And so you could imagine getting up the next day and and driving down your driveway and you begin to drive on this country road and you see these ruts and they're frozen. And so it's almost like you could put your wheels in the rut and you could take your hands off the steering wheel and your car just follows those ruts. What a helpful illustration. How as we grow in the reality that our new identity is in Christ is actually setting our mind on things that are above, setting our mind heavenward, and the habitual nature of this is actually like putting a rut 
in our minds so that it brings us towards heaven. Can I, can I ask you a question? What would it look like for your thoughts to be habitually heavenward? What would, it, what would it look like for you, for your thoughts to be habitually on things that are above and not on this earth? And maybe, of course, we all have the natural events of our lives. We have jobs that feel very earthly at times. And we have things we must do that seem very just of this earth. But, but maybe I could say it like this. When your mind is in neutral, when your mind maybe is just drifting, what are the things that kind of come up? Maybe when you're mindlessly driving down the road. Maybe it's when you just are, don't really have anything going on and you're just contemplating life. Where does your mind go? Is it the glory of the upcoming retirement? Is it the, the, the hope of a new relationship? Is it, you fill in the gaps, I don't know. And not saying those things are wrong uh, by any means. But so often they can become the default setting of how we think and we go in our minds very quickly. But what would it look like heaven-mindedness? Maybe you begin to think about how you could connect with your neighbors, give them the gospel. Maybe you can begin praying for someone who is your discipling. Maybe it, it could be the, the reality of a trial that's in your life and, and your default nature is to fix it or find what's going on. And instead, I'm just going to, I'm moving towards this heavenward affection in this circumstance. I, I'm not sure what it could be. But there is this reality that Paul does call, call us to this heavenward affection in our lives. So we have seen that we do have a new, new identity. And, and due to this new identity, our affections, what we love, has been touched. It actually moves us from our, our focus on earth to, to focus on heaven, and we begin to filter the events of life through the, the grid of heaven. And so what is this last reality that is important for us to see? Well, our new identity comes with immense benefits. Immense benefits. Now, what are the benefits that are afforded to me in this new identity? Well, my first of all, my identity in Christ removes the guilt from my past sin. You have died, verse 3. A few moments ago, we spoke about how sin's power is no longer objectively authoritative in your life. And because sin has no authoritative power, the guilt from sin has no authoritative right to call you back under the judgment of that sin. It's like perpetually uh, living out a sentence of which what was paid for in the judicial system. I love what Sinclair Ferguson said regarding this. He said, the determining factor of my existence is no longer my past, but it is Christ's past. Being in Christ now means that we interpret the past, the present, the future story of our lives through the cross of Christ. 
I love the old gospel hymn, my faith has found a resting place. From guilt my soul is freed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Jesus is enough. My identity in Christ removes the guilt from my past, but my identity in Christ allows my salvation to be secure. Through my identity in Christ, my salvation is secure. Where do we see this? The second half of verse 3. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. To be hidden has the meaning of being in safety, being secure. Usually we hide things. Uh, Usually when we hide things, we put something of great value in a safe. We place, you know, it in some place that won't be found. And, and it's because if it were to be found, there would be some sort of reality that would make it the question of its safety, you know, be, you know wonder if it actually uh, be taken or stolen. For an illustration, it's like a boyfriend who gets an, an engagement ring for his soon-to-be fiancé, and he hides that ring that valuable item so that it will not be stolen or lost, but also so that, so that the upcoming engagement announcement will not be spoiled. In a very real sense, the passage is saying that we are safe and secure in Christ. Remember John chapter 10, verse 29? Where it talks about how Jesus said, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Yes, this is the verse, the beautiful, the beautiful doctrinal truth that we hold on to regarding our eternal assurance of salvation, that we are eternally secure in Christ. But it also speaks to the reality that since you, as a valuable, precious child of God, are in the hand of God, There is no evil that will befall you that that falls outside of the heavenly Father that doesn't know what's happening within His own hand. Usually if something happens to our hand, we're very quick to notice. So is true with our heavenly Father. And as you are clasped in His hand, there is nothing outside of His world that rocks His world like it does you or I. And number three, the third reality is this. My identity in Christ affords me a future reunion. Where do we see this in verse four? When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. The next time Christ is seen, you will be with him. The next time Christ is seen, you will be with him. It's, imagine with me uh, seeing a bride come down the aisle at a wedding. And when the bride walks down the aisle, you know they are going to get married. The, the reality is certain. It's going to happen. Yes, there's been promises. Yes, there's been a ring that's been exchanged. There's been planning. But the groom has been having these plaguing thoughts wondering, Wondering, when is she going to wise up and figure out that I'm just a loser? 
And when she actually comes down the aisle, there is this reality, this is going to happen. Next time you see Jesus, you will be with Him. And one day your faith will be made whole. You will see the person of your affections and the one who gives you your identity face to face. You will be with Christ. So let me ask you in closing, what do we do with this? First thought is this. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ or are you still in Adam? Is it the reality that the sin that we were all born into still defines you? And if that is the reality for you, I would love to speak to you. One of the other pastors that you saw this morning would love to speak to you and share with you how you can know that you are in Christ. You have this intimate relationship with our Lord. But number two, a question, are you living like you are in Christ? Are you living in the objective reality that actually the authoritative power of sin has been destroyed? Has your affections been cast towards heaven? Are you living with those affections? Next week, we'll begin to look at the put-off, put-on realities of this new life in Christ. But let me ask you this question. It would be so terrible to begin with the put-off and put-on realities of the Christian life. Why would that be so terrible? Because it is not what we do to bring us into union with Christ. It is what He has done for us that we can, can herald and our affections can be set to Him. And out of that union with Christ flows this new lifestyle that is transformative. And so sins that has defined us in the past is no longer. And there's actually this new Christ-likeness that is, is not just the absence of sin, but is something even grander. It is Christ-likeness in a new way. So next week, we will begin looking at, after we've set this foundation of our union with Christ, we now begin to look next week at the reality of a lifestyle changed by this identity in Christ. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for the re these realities. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for Jesus dying on the cross for our sins so that we may be brought into union with him. Father, we thank you for the reality this morning that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing that can, can pluck us out of your sovereign hand. And so, Lord, for the, the unbeliever this morning, those who are not in Christ, I pray this morning that they would come to the reality today that they would put their trust in you for their eternal destiny, and may they be brought into this vital relationship with Christ. But Lord, I also pray for those who are believers, who are united with Christ, who have this identification. May this reminder serve this week as a blessed truth for them to enjoy and think on 
And may you keep the discouragement of the evil one away. And may we live in this beautiful reality of being united with our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the Son's name we pray. Amen.